We uh, are a people that live with guilt, people that live with shame, people that carry pasts, and, and uh, we're always wondering if we're doing it right. And uh, when we come into church, that is a time that we really start wondering, are we doing it right? Am, am I walking with God correctly? Am I, am I um, being obedient like I should? Am I impressing God with my actions? Am I in the ministry that I should? There's a lot of dynamics and questions that we have when we walk in churches. Am I doing this Christian life correctly? Am I doing it right? Uh, we're on a topic of worship for the next six weeks, a series of worship. And um, worship is the one thing, the only thing, that if you do worship right, everything else will fall in its place. If you do worship correctly, everything else will fall in its place from the Christian from the Christian walk. So what is worship? Number one, worship is the act of pledging your allegiance to your ultimate. That's what we talked about last week, that every single one of us have um, an ultimate in our life. Um, people think that, well, you know, Christians worship, other religions worship, but I'm an atheist, so therefore I don't worship. That is incorrect. We are all worshipers. And the reason why we're all worshipers is because we have this one ultimate thing that is in control of our lives. This one thing that we have chosen and made a commitment to that builds our worldview, that writes our principles, that define our ethics. This one specific worldview that we've really hung on to and said, this is my ultimate and it gives me purpose, it gives me drive, it gives me mission, and it is the one thing that I hang on to in my life. Every person has an ultimate. If you look in your notes, you'll see there's kind of four basic ultimates that some of us can easily migrate to. Christians can easily migrate to as well. An ultimate of yourself, your mission, your love, um, or your sin. So say uh, you've made an ultimate, and my ultimate is myself. How do you know if your ultimate is yourself? When greed pours out of our life, and money is our drive, and our image is our passion, what are we doing? We're making the ultimate ourself in a concept of, I worship myself. And everything steers around what I want, not what other people want, not what I should be doing. And our ethics are starting to even write under ourselves. Well, I have freedom of speech, no matter how ugly it is, and no matter if it hurts anybody's feelings or not. Or I want freedom in regards to marriage or in regards to whatever I want. And then we start writing laws even because we are our ultimate. My desires are my ultimate. Therefore, nothing else really matters. It's me and me alone. That's somebody who worships himself. But look at your mission. Some people make their ultimate their mission. My job is the thing that identifies me. My job is the thing that controls me. My job is the thing that I hold on to, and as long as I have it, I feel like somebody who is strong, somebody who is good, somebody who is complete. But if I don't have it, it seems like I've lost everything. And as that being our ultimate, we can hang on to that. We could get rid of family. We can get rid of almost everything as long as we have our job because it gives us our identity. Um, Some people make love their ultimate, a specific relationship. If I have this person, then everything is going to be good. But if I don't have this person in a marriage relationship, then everything is going to be completely entirely um, ruined. 
Some people are very obsessive with relationships, making that their one thing that drives their heart, their will, their mind, and their emotions. Um, you even look at uh, the concept of um, affairs. Um, people are married, and as people are married, they start venturing off and loving somebody else. And when somebody steps into another relationship and has an affair, what are they getting rid of? They're getting rid of almost everything that they once had um, in regards to their family, in regards to the love that they had for their mate. Would that be a step to an ultimate? Would that be something that you are worshiping? Love is a powerful thing, and people can often worship it. Some people are worshiping their sins under those categories, just your obsessions, your addictions, uh, your evil ambitions. I cannot get rid of this. I will not get rid of this under any circumstances, and I'm not even going to longer try. This is the thing I hold on to. This is the thing that identifies me. This is the thing that I'll hang on to even if the whole world passes away. What is worship? Worship is the act of pledging your allegiance to your one ultimate. So we can ask the question, what is your ultimate? You kind of think in your mind, what is my one thing that writes my worldview? What is my one thing that writes my principles? What is the one thing that drives me? And it will be different in all of us. But the Bible is very specific on what God wants our ultimate to be. Number two, the Bible calls us to pledge our allegiance specifically to God. I had someone um, ask me to lunch, and as I went to this uh, lunch with this individual, um, he was uh, struggling in many um, different areas, uh, very depressed, very discouraged. And, and I asked him a question. I said, how's your relationship with God? He said, well, I haven't missed church in the last three months. Um, I missed twice on reading my Bible and, and, and explained all the things that he's doing for God. I said, hold on a second. How is your relationship with God? Are you in love with God? So what we can easily do is we can embrace religion as our ultimate. We can embrace ministry as our ultimate. We can embrace morality as our ultimate. We can embrace other things other than God, even in the church setting, as our ultimate in a replacement to God. Mark twelve thirty says, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all of your strength. This verse is not explaining you should love your ministry. You should love your righteousness. You should love your morality. No, you should love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Remember we've been talking about worship? What is worship? Worship is something that has your mind. Worship is something that has your emotions. And worship is something that drives your will. This verse is saying specifically God should be that one thing that drives your mind, heart, and will. Exodus 23, or 20, verse 3. This is the Ten Commandments. The first commandment and the second commandment are written here. You shall have no other gods before me. The top commandment is about what? It's about worship. Commandment number two. You shall not make yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth, beneath or in the water, or under the water, or under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, I am a jealous God. What's the second commandment in the Ten Commandments? 
It is about worship. It is about your one thing being your ultimate. John Piper said, Sunday mornings is conceived as a means to accomplish something other than worshiping. We worship to raise money. We worship to attract crowds. We worship to heal human hurts, to recruit workers, to improve church morale, to give talented musicians an opportunity to fulfill their calling, to teach our children the way of righteousness, to help marriages stay together, to evangelize the lost, to motivate people for service projects, to give our churches a family feeling, but genuine affection for God are an end to themselves. All those things I mentioned are are very good things, are very healthy things, but if any of these are the ultimate, then none of them will really take place in full strength. God being the ultimate will produce those things, but these items cannot be the ultimate. Letter A, God is not a key that unlocks treasure chests. God is the treasure chest. Trying to understand the concept of how God is our ultimate, he is not a key that unlocks something for us. He is the treasure chest that we are looking for. When God looked down on us in a sinful state, who did he send? He sent his only begotten son. He sent God made man, Jesus, God. He sent God to earth. You see, when we are in our state of need, he gave us the greatest gift. The greatest gift was not even necessarily forgiveness. The greatest gift was not necessarily heaven. The greatest gift that was handed to us when we were in a sinful state was God himself. God came down as man, died in our stead, and rose again so that we can live with who? So we can live with him. When we look at Psalms, we see um, a heart of worship as songs are consistently taking place. And uh, the one that wrote more psalms than anyone else was David. And we know in the book of Acts that David was a man after God's own heart. So when we read his psalms, we want to ask the question, why was David called a man after God's own heart? Read this psalm from David. It gives a revelation of why. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants specifically for you. My God, my soul thirsts for God. For the living God, when can I go and meet with God? What was David's ultimate passion? His ultimate passion was specifically God. It's a thing that he was starving for. As you see these aggressive verbs take place, it's a thing that he wanted. It was a thing that he needed. It is a thing that he desired. It was a thing that he was obsessed with. In a sense that it took his mind, took his heart, and also took his emotions and will. Last week, we went down the Rogue River on a raft, and I've been down the Rogue River many times on the raft. I've also hiked the trail, which is a 40-mile trail, um, uh, many times as well. Well, this week, um, I took my 14-year-old daughter, Maya, down the river, and we came up to our our last camp, and when we came up to our last camp, I asked her if she wanted to go for a walk on the trail, because we're talking about as a family, you know, hiking the trail possibly next year. I said, let's go on the trail, let's go for a, a little hike. And she said, yeah, let's do it. Sounds good. So sure enough, we went up to the trail. And little did she know that um, this specific part of the trail that we were walking on, it's only a mile stretch, but this specific part of the trail, um, I've encountered a bear and I've encountered two rattlesnakes. And little did she know that in the back of my mind, I was thinking, 
I hope we get to see a bear. It'd be really nice if we get to see a rattlesnake to be able to have her have the experience. Sure enough, we walked all the way through it, that specific part, and we didn't see anything, so we started heading home. And when we were walking on the trail, it showed up, a big old rattlesnake on the middle of the trail. Now, it was me, Maya, and my dog. So when I saw the rattlesnake, I hate to say it, I have to jump. It's like, whoa, rattlesnake. And that really concerns Maya when I, when I jump. And I say, get the dog. And uh, so sure enough, she grabs the dog. She says, what's going on? I said, look at it. And he was just sitting on the trail. Now, as he's sitting on the trail, I said, you got to hear him rattle. That's the times that gets really good. So I, sure enough, I pick up a stick, the only stick that I could possibly find. And boy, did I make him mad. And, uh, and as I was making him mad, as he's sitting there rattle, one, striking at the stick, um, I said, my daughter, look at it, look at it, look at it. Isn't it cool? Isn't it cool? And her response was, Dad, my knees are going weak. I am so afraid. Will you knock it off? And I was having so much fun. Sure enough, we let the rattlesnake go. I was nice to him. And then we continued to walk on the trail. That rattlesnake was still in her mind. That rattlesnake was still in her heart. And that rattlesnake still controlled her will. In fact, every time she saw something, she thought it was a rattlesnake. And she was jumping. She saw three gardener snakes when she's walking down. She's like, ah, rattlesnake. Not everything is a rattlesnake. She said, Dad, why did you do that to me? It's like, I just was having fun. But what did it do? It consumed her. And as it consumed her, it had almost everything that she, she had, all of her emotions, all of her will, all of her mind. You look at this passage. This is not a simple passage. This is a heart that is exposed to something. As a deer pants for streams of water. David understands what deer do when they need water and the struggle to get it, the angst inside of a, a deer that desires it, I will stop at nothing until I get it. As that deer pants for water, so my soul pants specifically. This is the energy. My soul pants specifically for you, O oh God. My soul thirsts. I want to be quenched with it for God, for the living God. When can I go and I meet with God? There's an energy behind the Psalms, and it's on a specific thing pointed specifically to God. Letter B, God is not a stepping stone to great happiness. God is your source of happiness. Everybody knows that if you want to enrich a soul, you have to add something more valuable than the soul itself. What we often do is we grab a hold of money, we grab a hold of wealth, we grab a hold of fame for the purpose of making the soul, the person, rich, making the soul more beautiful, but the, the thing that the soul is really starving for that is more valuable is really God himself. It's not a mansion. It's not a castle. It's not money. It's not wealth. It is specifically God himself. Psalms 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, when you look at this verse, what is this verse explaining? That if I delight in God, my wealth will come. If I delight in God, my blessings will come. Not necessarily. If you delight in the Lord, all the desires that you really even long for will come. And we all know that we carry lots of desires. Desires for healing, desires for health, desires for wealth, desires for power, desires for position, but the delighting in the Lord is specifically the ultimate thing that we are even starving for. And when we embrace it and delight in Him, those desires 
will come. Let her see, God is not a tool to get something great. God is the something great you are starving for. We look in the Bible and the heaven is talked about and we see the new Jerusalem that is written in, Jerusalem, or is written in Revelation. Uh, we see a lot of descriptions of, of what is in heaven and the beauty that is going to, going to take place. Now we can easily look at that and start worshiping uh, something else in regards. Worshiping, you know, if I could get to heaven, just think of the castle that I'm going to have on the hill. Just think of the wealth that I'm going to have. Those comments are somebody that is, is worshiping themselves, and they've got good investments here, but they might want better investments there. Heard a comment that if you're in heaven and God in all of its beauty, and God is not there, in other words, all the castles, all the mansions, the gold streets, if you're there and God is not there, then you're really in hell. Now, if you go to hell and you show up and God is there, then you're really in heaven. Heaven exists right where God is at. Psalmist, Psalm 16, 5, the Lord is my portion of my inheritance. Your inheritance is specifically God himself. Now, we sell ourselves short. We read this verse and we see inheritance, and we automatically go, oh, what can I get? But the Lord is the portion of your inheritance. And we have it now. Charles Spurgeon says, It is a bad sign for a child to love his father because he gives him meat and drink and clothes and will leave him an inheritance and not rather love and not rather to love the very person of his father himself. Letter D, God is not a spring of living water to drink from. God is the living water. As I mentioned before, we are people that uh, feel guilty. We are people that have regrets. We are people that have shame. We are people that carry pasts. And as we look at God as not the source of life, but look at him as somebody who gives the source of life or even gives the water, what it does is it, it poisons us. And the way that it poisons us is that we still feel the shame because we cannot measure up. We still feel the guilt when we worship God because we still have those things on our shoulder. But if God is the living water, not the source of the living water, but God is the living water, what kind of statement does that make to us? What did God do? He left heaven, came to earth, died on the cross, gave himself specifically for us. What is he going to withhold from us? Why would we ever feel guilty in regards to what he's done? He came for the purpose of washing our guilt away. He came for the purpose of washing our sin away. He came for the purpose of setting us completely clean. For why? So we can have a relationship with him. The cross was done so we could embrace him a living God. So if God is the living water, what are you going to do? Embrace him. All the guilt should be gone. All the shame should be gone. All the, the regret should be gone as we hold on to specifically him. Many religions are out there that work their way up to salvation. If you're going to work your way up to salvation, you will always feel guilty. You will always feel shame. But if you're going to look at the cross and recognize the cross for what it is, 
it's going to give you a peace and an energy to embrace God himself. And that is when joy, that is when happiness, that is when peace, that is when your regret will be gone, will take place. Psalm 63, 1, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I will seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. This psalmist, David, is explaining, this is what I want. You and you specifically, knowing that that's where I find my freedom. So when we're looking at this, well, how do you worship? How do I make God my ultimate? What is a stepping stone that says, I want to step into this category of worship. Give me some principles of what I need to do specifically when I come to church or even outside of church um, to make God my ultimate. What do I need to get right? Number three, worship God by treasuring him. Yesterday, my wife and I went um, on a date to the Turnaround Cafe, and uh, we don't get a a lot of dates, but we try to sneak away um, every once in a while. As we are both very busy, we try to sneak away and and just have fellowship over a meal. And uh, when we have fellowship over a meal, uh, we talk about all sorts of things, it seems like, but we also like to reminisce the past, we like to talk about the present, and we also like to talk about the future. Reminiscing the past, we talk about times when we fell in love. Um, and she always reminds me, you know, when we fell in love, you were a, a logger that lived in a trailer that was not self-contained, and uh, now you're a preacher. I didn't fall in love with a preacher, I fell in love with, with, with a logger. And uh, she says, you know, I've had a pretty good impact on you probably. And I just kind of... <laughs> smiled at her and said, well, you know, when I fell in love with you, uh, you were a freshman in college dating uh, another guy, you know, that time that I fell in love with you, and you were on uh, academic probation because your grades were so bad. Now, after I dated you, your sophomore year, your junior year, and your senior year, you got a four point. <laughs> it's like, look at the, look what I've, look what I, I've done to you. Um, and then you're a principal, if you didn't marry me, you would still be in the principal's office. But now, you know, you're <laughs> we just like to joke about our past, our history, the things that have taken place. We like to talk about when we're raising kids and the, the tough aspects of raising young, young children and babies and those things. And, and just all the way through life, we talk about our good times, we talk about our bad times. We do talk about our present. I think the present conversation we're having right now is we're starting to count the years. One year and four months, our oldest daughter is going to leave home, go to college, and she wants to go to San Diego to go to college. So we start thinking, is she going to be back? I mean, just those things, just reminiscing. And then we start saying, you know, we're going to be empty nesters in four and a half years. So we just talk about those things. We also reminisce about the future. Yesterday, we talked about, you know, what do you want to do when um, she retires? She's going to retire in about 13 years. And, uh, and I told her what I want to do. I said, I want to get a Harley motorcycle, and I want to drive around the United States. And she says, yeah, you'll have to be doing that alone. <laughs> and she, says, I'll, I'll, she said, I'll, I'll go with you. And she just talked a little bit about hiking. She says, you know, I'd, I'd like to get back into hiking. She was hiking with me before children uh, quite a bit. And, and she mentioned that, you know, I think we still have a good, strong years in us of, of being able to hike. I said, well, if you start doing the math, you have 13 years. Will we have those strong years in 13 years? Maybe we should start hiking right now while we still have those good years. But what do we do? Reminiscing, sharing our time together. When I look at my relationship with my wife, I treasure her time. 
I treasure her love. I treasure her beauty. I treasure her friendship. I treasure just being specifically with her. If you look in Ephesians 5, Ephesians 5 explains to us that the relationship between a husband and wife is the same relationship that Christ has with his church. What God is saying is look at the relationship you have with your husband and wife and the health of it, and then look at me and carry that same relationship. What does that mean? Maybe reminisce with God, treasure him, thank him, talk with him in your prayers, connect with him, enjoy his presence, enjoy his time, enjoy his love, enjoy his beauty, just treasure him from the heart. Psalms 43, 4, then will I go to the altar of God, to God, my joy and my delight. I will praise you with a harp, O God, my God. Now we can do psalm after psalm after psalm after psalm, but where are the songs directing to? They're directing to the one ultimate. They're directing specifically to God. Henry Blackaby says, If you find that Christianity exhausts you, draining you of your energy, then you are practicing religion rather than enjoying a relationship. Jesus said that a relationship with him would bring rest to your soul. Your walk with the Lord will make you not weary. It will invigorate you, restore your strength, and energize you. Often we think of Christianity as something that exhausts us. Why? Because we think it's something we have to do, something we have to make happen, something that we have to have happen in our lives. But really what's taking place is a relationship with God is something that is enjoyable, is something that is strong, is something that is rich. Number four, worship God by enjoying him. Many people kneel, not necessarily to worship, but to um, examine, to search, uh, to find a cause, to understand how to do things. Our thoughts and habits are those more of a scientist rather than a worshiper. We have to examine God. We have to see God. We have to try to understand God. We have to see if God's going to answer our prayers in which way or another. But what is worship? We are more likely to um, explain. We are more likely to research. We're more likely to um, understand when we bow the knee more than just adoring in his presence. More than coming and just adoring in his presence. Psalm 63.3, because your love is better than life, my lips will praise you. John Piper said, joy is not a mere option alongside worship. It is an essential component of worship. God is not worshipped where he is not treasured and enjoyed. Praise is not an alternative to joy, but the expression of joy. Not to enjoy God is to dishonor him. To say to him that something else satisfies you more is the opposite of worship. It is sacrilege. So what would the heart of worship be? The heart of worship would be specifically enjoying just being in his presence. Enjoying just being in his presence. Psalm 1611, you will fill me with joy, where? In your presence. Now we are human beings who are starving for happiness. We're starving for joy. We're starving to be full, and we try to find everything we possibly can to feed that hunger that we are starving for. But where is it taking us? Does it take us to the foot of God? 
all the way through the Psalms, you see, come into my presence. You see, sing a shout for joy with all your might, with all your heart. You see all the emotions that we are really starving for in the book of Psalms as we are worshiping. Where do we get all the things that we need? We get them specifically from God and God himself in his presence. Number five, worship God by loving him. When we work at the word love, we can go through many dynamics of giving the definition. But I just want to um, step with the, or make a statement from the Webster Dictionary. Uh, the Webster Dictionary in regards to what the definition of love is. Here is the definition. A strong feeling of affection and concern toward another person. As that rising from kinship and close friends. I'll read again. This is a Webster, Webster Dictionary on love. A strong feeling of affection and concern toward another person as that arising from kinship or close friends. Was there a strong affection when Christ came and died on the cross? There was such a strong feeling and affection because he was doing it for somebody. He was doing it for somebody that he loved. And it is the ultimate statement of love. According to Webster Dictionary, an ultimate statement of this strong feeling affection specifically to who? To you. So we can ask the question, do I have a strong feeling of affection for God? And if I do, have a, do not have a strong feeling of affection, how do I get a strong feeling of affection? Do you see what the cross does? It comes with a strong feeling of affection of God's love specifically to you. And as we look at it, meditate on it, and understand it, there should be a strong feeling of affection back to the cross that says, thank you, God. Thank you for being my king. Thank you for being my Lord. Thank you for being my Savior. Thank you for coming and dying for me. Thank you for saving me. That's what love is. Christ expressed it to us, and when we see that expression, we should have that same expression that goes back to him. Just to finish the definition, towards another person, at that arising from kinship and close friends. So love comes when somebody is very, very important to you, does something that makes you feel affectionate towards. Um, God uses love all the way through and commands us to love. What is he saying? He's saying, I am your kinship, and I am your friend, and I am close, for you, close to you, and this is what I've done. See it, and then respond to it. Psalms 34, 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. In Romans eight twenty eight, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who do what? To those who love God. So we can easily come into church... And as we come into church and as we worship, we can worship for a different purpose rather than enjoying God, rather than loving God, rather than treasuring God. But the heart of worship is love, enjoy, and treasure God because you want Him to be your ultimate and absolutely nothing else. So the challenge would be every time you walk in the doors and the songs are coming out, pray specifically to God. Sing specifically to God. When you open up your Bible in your quiet time, open up specifically to hear the words of God. When you pray, talk specifically to God. Because He 
when he is your ultimate, everything that you desire as a human being will come together. God, we just thank you, God, for pursuing us. We uh, don't deserve to pray to you. We don't deserve to sing to you. We don't even deserve to worship you. Um, But God, you have come and you have commanded us to do so. Um, Thank you, God, for that command. And I just pray that every person in the church uh, would take advantage of it, God. God, if we are struggling making you our ultimate, I just pray, God, that you would um, strengthen us, convict us, move us uh, to the point where you are the one thing that drives our life, the one thing that gives us our worldview, the one thing that has our mind, our emotions, and our will. This is what we ask in Christ's name. Amen.